on one level. <clears throat> Doesn't look like much is happening. People just sitting around. Peaceful place. Looks really easy. I remember once when I was a monk, I was invited to give a talk at a place where there was a severely disabled people. While I waited, the, this, it was quite neat, this whole assembly of electronic wheelchairs and things gathered. And I gave a talk about how we're all disabled. But afterwards, one of the, I guess, nurses came up to me and was very angry, just with quite a lot of heat and anger. She said, how can you just sit up there on that hill of yours? Our monastery was on a little hill. It was... uh, in a little village outside of Honiton called the village of a pottery in this county, Devon. So easy up there being peaceful while there are people suffering. There's not much I could say. First of all, I wasn't on the hill when I was given that talk. (laughs) It's not so easy sitting up there on a hill. Our teacher said, what we're doing in a way is like sitting in the middle of a hurricane. As another good friend of ours, the abbot of the Chithurst Monastery said, we're sitting here eyeball to eyeball with our karma, with what we've created, the tendencies, the habits, the views, the judgments, <coughs> the desires, the aversions. Our normal unconscious tendency is just to go with that flow or distract ourselves. But in this atmosphere of contemplation,
as our teacher used to remind us, the word contemplation has at its heart temple, which comes from a template, a boundary. In ancient times, you would contemplate within a sacred boundary. Surrender to that boundary. Stay within that boundary. And in staying within that boundary, all sorts of desires and aversions and impulses and moods would come. But one would, because of one's religio, one's spiritual practice, one's religion, one's binding oneself to that template. Ultimately for the sake of liberation, because in staying put, we have a chance to notice things well up that seem so seductive, so convincing, so overwhelming. And yet in staying, we have the opportunity to notice the the restlessness pass, the turmoil pass, the dawn turning to midday, the midday fading into dusk, the dusk dissolving into night. We're working within a template, within a boundary, which looks in a way like it's, in a way, trapping us, but it allows us to be able to see, see directly, eyeball to eyeball, our tendencies. So the silence, we're not distracting ourselves with conversation, not because we're judging conversation, because... We're giving each other permission to listen to all the inner conversations, the inner dialogue, which is the root of everything we say and do. Binding ourselves to that form, that template of a sitting posture for a period. Learning to bear discomfort all sorts of moods. It's not easy. But it allows us to notice how many habits we have that, that seem so much to be me, these voices, I've got to get out of here, can well up, so convincing, I'm dying in here, can't, can't breathe. Too many people in here. Air's not good. I know I should have gone on that walking holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Circulating the chi. Fresh air. Space. To bear that, see that, it's not easy. The Buddha described when we're pulling ourselves out of our habitual tendencies by learning to surrender to a template, to a, to a practice that ultimately liberates us from unconsciously identifying with all these tendencies, 
all these conditions. The Buddha described that process like pulling a fish out of water. It will flop around. It's, it's out of its normal matrix. It feels like it's dying. just an analogy but we we really do feel like that sometimes all these voices well up I encourage us not to not to believe those voices and assume that something's going terribly wrong that's the the point of this practice is so that we can then see all the tendencies of the heart understand them. When I... How many years ago was that? 33 years ago when I left my scholarship at Oxford University and went off to Thailand having heard of a master, great master in the forest that had a few Westerners with him that could teach you how to be peaceful. I got a leave of absence from the university because I realized though I had awards from Princeton in America and was on this Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford and though in my mom's scrapbooks I looked really successful I realized inside there was just confusion but when I went off to Thailand uh, my parents back in Chattanooga, Tennessee were Horrified. This is back in the 70s, 1976. They really were afraid I'd been abducted by a cult or. And in Lake Chickamauga, Hickson, Tennessee, outside of Chattanooga, Buddhist monks were not. <laughs> You don't see many Buddhist monks in the Bible Belt in those those days. So they really were concerned and, and they actually went to Thailand. Believe me, for a mom and dad to go to Thailand was a big deal. Went to the forest in the northeast. Went to see, went to see. My mom's terrified of the creatures of the forest, and they went right there in the forest, stayed in the forest, what parents will do for their children. They couldn't really understand what I was doing, but they did see that it was a real monastery, that there were sincere people. And Ajahn Chah was very kind, very compassionate, and spent a lot of time had time for them. Not only was my mom and dad worried about 
what I was doing there and why I would go halfway around the world. But also they were just afraid. At that time, it was a very unstable part of the world. The disaster of the Vietnam War was over, but there was a catastrophe there. The killing fields, the rumors of the killing fields in Thailand were circulating in Cambodia, which our monastery was right near the Cambodian and Laotian border, right in northeast Thailand. Rumors of the killing fields in Cambodia were circulating. The uh, I think the, the, the regime in Laos had fallen. So my dad was also quite worried about all these reports of uh, communist guerrillas on the border, and he was worried for our safety as well. So he asked Ajahn Chah about that. I remember Ajahn Chah gave uh, my parents a lovely talk. He said to, to them, said to my father, the guerrillas, the terrorists that you really need to be afraid of, the ones you really need to be concerned about, are the ones in your own heart. We get so focused on enemies and evil and threats outside. And we we forget where really the danger lies. Najan Shah gave a, a talk to my mother and father about that what we were doing in this monastery is learning to read the book of the heart, learning to know these impulses, these moods, not just theorize about them, but know them. That's hard work. We've all been meeting these energies, I'm sure. Sometimes in, in Buddhist teachings they're called hindrances, obstructions, Afflictions, as we're cultivating the practice of learning to be where we are, be with this body, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, be with the breathing. We can encounter, and I'm sure many of us, or even all of us have, and encounter the struggle. Desire. Wanting to be more peaceful. Wanting to get to the end. When we're enlightened and blessing all beings. Just wanting to be somewhere else. Out on the walking holiday.
or its twin, not wanting, wanting somehow to get away from that excruciating heavy feeling of feeling like we're in pea soup, or the confusion, or the pain, pain of an ankle or a knee or everything in pain at the same time. Now those seemingly harmless voices are so seductive, they so seem like me. We befriend them, we can follow them, we can bow down to them and assume that's me. I, I want to be somewhere else. That's me, I don't like this. I don't like this moment, this situation. Now, when we don't recognize what, what's happening, when we take that, just take that to be me, that simple desire that if I could just go there, away from this, to there, seems so harmless. Actually, Ajahn Chah says, when we, when we do that, We don't know it. We're not recognizing something that's robbing us. Those energies, when not understood, terrorize us, tyrannize us, rob us. It's like taking a thief to be our own child, the Buddha said. It's like a yak enamored with its tail. It's another image the Buddha gave. Imagine this yak, enamored with its tail, just going round and round and round. We imagine, no, 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 it's there. That sight, that sound, over there. Just just not right there. If I get that or get rid of that, That right in that harm, seemingly harmless move, there's, a, there's birth and death. We've created an endless cycle of birth and death. Because then in that movement to get somewhere else, to get rid of what's here, to get to something else that is right, that's what I want, that's what I need, We already assume that this moment is a desert, that the sacred mountain, the treasure, is somehow just a little over there. Now the Buddha said we don't need to be traumatized by these things. The good news is that once we, it's when we're unconscious about them, unconsciously believing in desire and aversion and our heaviness of mind and our anxiety and restlessness of mind, believing in our doubts, when we take them to be me, don't investigate them, then we're tangled up. We're robbed of ever (coughs) truly experiencing peace. We will know no deep samadhi. But even when we have these energies, and we all do, when we start to contemplate, already there's a transformation happening. 
when we start to contemplate these afflictions, these, these hindrances, these currents, they then become our teachers. We learn from them. We learn patience. We learn understanding. We've been practicing mindfulness and samadhi today. And some of, some of us maybe have uh, gotten a little bit calm. And that's uh, lovely if it's happened. If it's not happened, don't worry about it. But just remember that any calm that we have is still based on conditions. It's, it's still fragile. It's still impermanent, subject to our body changing, our mood changing. It's skillful to learn how to take a holiday, to learn how to be calm. That's skillful. And for the rest of our life, little by little, we can learn how to stabilize ourselves in the simplicity of standing, sitting, breathing. But remember, freedom from birth and death ultimately comes from wisdom. And so Ajahn Chah encouraged, especially the Western disciples, we're quite, though he had to light a fire under some of his Thai disciples, the Western disciples tend, we seem to be so obsessed already. We get in there into meditation like a snapping turtle. And we, we get, on, get a taste of a little bit of that calm. I know that's how I was. And I just want more, more, more. More that delicious, smooth. <laughs> and that's it's smooth, but it's like that Lake Chickamauga that I grew up on on a summer's evening when the lake is like glass and there's not even a ripple. Delicious, a sound, even a mile away, even a whisper you can hear from a mile away. Beautiful. But on a summer evening, and then the motorboats start coming, and everybody wants, and everybody wants that peace. And calm is like that. Yes, calm is delicious. Enjoy it. Skill with it can get refreshed. You keep wanting more, 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 more. Somehow my idea was if I get calm enough and even would occasionally see lights, and I thought, light, enlightenment, light, enlightenment. (laughs) And I was going to just go there and then it was going to be a big orgasmic explosion. And he lived happily ever after blessing the multitude. (laughs) and that's a recipe for suffering because then more and more we resent our neighbors and we resent the breathing and then you have to hide every ticking clock within within 50 yards I used to have to hide all the clocks in the monastery put them under pillows as they say that's called wrong view (laughs) 
So calm, okay, but remember it's it's impermanent and, and the Buddha encouraged us to use our calm to then investigate. Yes, for the rest of our life it's useful to develop some skill at calm. But Ajahn Chah said, even if you only have enough concentration to read a book, you still have enough to begin to develop wisdom. And wisdom is what liberates us because I don't care how refined the state is, if you think that's what's going to turn into freedom, the Buddha said that's like cooking sand, hoping for a delicious delicacy. No, 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 it just needs a little more time. Keep cooking the sand. He said it's like polishing a brick wanting to get a mirror. We keep getting more refined, more refined, more refined. We're asking of conditions what conditions can't give us. So remember, it's with a just slight adjustment we can start to notice the nature of conditions. As we breathe in and breathe out, stabilizing our attention with the body, with walking, with standing, with sitting, with lying down. We then can actually notice the nature of a breath to begin and to end. To swell and subside. And that though the word is a noun, breath, my breath, my subtle breath, That's just the name. The reality when we read the book of the heart when through our present moment-to-moment contact with knowing what we call breath, what sounds like a thing, is actually changing every instant. Every instant. And then what we call the in-breath is gone. And every instant what we call the out-breath. And every sound is just like that too. Every sound arises, ceases. Every thought All these thoughts about what we need, who we are, it's not going so good, hope it'll go better later. Arising and ceasing. This body, not only the breathing, but the heartbeat, sensations of the body, the energy of the body, the appearance of the body, changing every moment. And just like the elements around us, we're made up of the elements. We notice everywhere we look in the world of form, at the sky, the flowers, the earth, 
every form, shifting, vibrating, every sound, every light, color. And that's the most solid stuff, not to mention feelings. Feelings are much more ephemeral. The feeling meaning the the sense of being pleased in our contact with sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought. We have feelings. We're pleased. Oh, that's lovely. Lovely taste. Yet when, when desire arises and we don't know what it is, it grasps at that and thinks, yes, that's good, that's what I want. But the ne- try the next time we have a pleasant feeling. Let's say it's a lovely flower. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, just keep looking. Five seconds, ten seconds, it's beautiful. Notice your eyes starting to get tired. You blink. As we know with food, what happens when we get fooled? We, something's beautiful and we just want more. And believe me, I know. Keep eating. Yet desire and aversion tells us, no, if I just get there, if I just get that, then there will be certainty, there will be happiness. We cling to pleasure, we cling to position, to success, to praise. And yet just like that breath, it's coming and going. All the conditions in this life are becoming otherwise every instant. As our teacher Ajahn Chah said, when we look for certainty in that which is actually uncertain, we're bound to suffer. So if we're looking for certainty, looking for home ground, looking for security, looking for what we really are, trying to capture some moment, some sight, some sound, some feeling, some situation. We're bound to suffer because the nature of this conditioned world, wisdom tells us this, the nature of this conditioned world is it is ever-changing. And if it's ever-changing, then it's unreliable. It's not through any value judgment. Its nature is to keep shifting. So it's not able, a condition can't ultimately satisfy us. Though we call it my body, though we call it my lovely, luscious, calm meditation, it's just a way of talking. Actually, it's not mine. It's not yours. It belongs to Dhamma. It belongs to nature. Like the in-breath is there and then it's gone. I used to be a championship wrestler, if you can imagine it. With a, muscles and a chest so big, 
At first they thought I was a girl. I had such a big chest in time. <laughs> then for years I could barely walk. I was so sick. How many times during the day have we sat with an emotion that wells up because of our surrendering to the template of silence or of sitting or of walking? Something, have you noticed, something wells up and screams at us, I can't take this. But if we're patient, have we, have we had a moment of seeing it well up and then shift? And then we think, wow, it seemed like me. And had I followed that mood, then I would have deepened that habit to identify with that thief, that imposter, But even one moment of seeing that come and go, there's already a hairline fracture in our old, fixed, limited, contracted way of seeing ourselves in the world. It might not seem like much, because on a multiple choice exam, is the world changing, yes or no? Well, yeah. So what? Might not seem like much, but the Buddha said, if we have even a moment, a moment, like a finger snap, he said, if you have a moment, of holding the perception of impermanence, moment of recognizing impermanence, that that has huge transformative power. He said, even if you give alms to countless beings, do all sorts of wonderful deeds, but a moment a moment of seeing impermanence, tremendous meritorious energy. Why is that? Because when we don't see change, all our energy sees happiness is there, out there somewhere. The contemplative path, as I said this morning, is the beginning of the great reversal when we start to realize, when we realize all the forms, all the feelings, all the perceptions, all the impulses, all even the moments of knowing are changing and ultimately ungraspable, then, then a healthy weariness starts, a disenchantment starts. It's not a bad state. We've been enchanted When we don't investigate desire and aversion, the desires just tell us, no, 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 I'll get there when I get to the perfect person, the perfect situation, the perfect meditation. When I just get rid of these nuisances. When we start to question, so that kind of doubt's a helpful question. That 
weariness with grasping after a pleasant feeling, having it to keep evaporating. We start to sense the endless cycle, what's called samsara. When I first met Ajahn Chah and he asked me what I was going to do next, what I was going to do next, oh, no, I'll do some meditation, then I'll go back to Oxford and then I'll become a doctor. And he said, what am I going to do next? He kept saying it. Then he held up his spittoon and he ran his fingers round and round and round and round and round. It's like an insect walking on the rim of something. It thinks it's making this long, long journey. Oh, it's a long journey. <laughs> Whew, I think I must be getting there. Yeah, but we're going round and round like that yak chasing its tail, trying to pin down, trying to get there. That disenchantment when the spell starts to be broken, that's skillful. We start then to notice what arises, ceases. So as we're, we can also in our meditation. Just notice that the breath is changing. Sustain that. Learning to relax with the change of the sounds, of the sensations, of the moods. Notice what starts to be highlighted when, when we start to see the change. Then the heart itself, we start to become conscious of something that knows the change. why it's called the great reversal. Who is all this change happening to? And we even begin to notice the changing nature of thought and all the opinions we have about ourselves. We learn to let thoughts come and go. As we see change, then dispassion, disenchantment grows. If we grasp at change, wanting it not to be change, somehow wishing that, oh, I just wish I could really be peaceful. If we're grasping at the phenomenal world, wanting it not to change, we're just asking the impossible. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, it's like asking a chicken, why aren't you a duck? It's just, we're asking. So when we start to allow the changing, we start to honor that. Let that be. Then in our breathing practice, we can let things go. Let things come and let things go. And not grasping at the change, not pushing away the change can start to taste the ground, the spaciousness. Start to notice the original brightness. The Buddha's first disciple who had insight, the very first disciple whose eye of Dhamma opened who had his first taste of Nibbana, his first glimpse of deep peace. The insight that he had was whatever arises, 
ceases. Anything that comes, its nature is to go. In-breath, out-breath. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling. Good meditation, not so good meditation. Dawn, dusk. The image that helped him have that breakthrough, when he realized he was looking in the wrong place, he was polishing that brick, wanting it to turn into something other than a brick. The image that helped him was what he called the host and the guest. He said, when there's, a, when there's a hotel, a place where people stay, the guests come and go. They do not stay. They come for a while and then they leave. But the host remains. When we take refuge in Kuan Yin, the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world, or in Buddha, it's another name for this quality of knowing, we're returning to this home ground of the host, that measureless knowingness that remains. Every sound comes, it's a visitor and goes. But even when the sound dissolves, what remains? Listening at ease to the sounds of the world. We can practice with our thoughts, letting a sound come, it's a guest, and then letting the sound of our inner voice dissolve And notice there's still the listening, the knowing, the host. But whatever name you give it is just another visitor. It's the nameless name. Until we know this home ground, we don't know peace. We don't know completion. So I'm encouraging us. If we have struggles and afflictions, turn them into our teachers. Let them teach us arising and ceasing. Let them teach us their changing nature. Let them be transformed into deep, spacious listening. Finishing with the Buddha's words on this place, this place of 
the home ground. A Brahmin student came to the Buddha with a question. His name was Kappa. He said, Sir, there are people stuck midstream in the terror and the fear of the rush of the river of becoming. Death and decay overwhelm them. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. Where is their solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain? Kappa, said the master, for the sake of those people stuck in the middle of the river of becoming, overwhelmed by death and decay, I will tell you where to find solid ground. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession, of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay, and this is why I call it Nibbana. There are people who in mindfulness have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, working for death. They cannot fall into his power. So however it seems to have been today, even if it seems like a hopeless day, do not underestimate the auspiciousness of our good fortune and the true and profound blessings which we are generating here. For ourselves and our family and our community and our world. So, finishing this day with the thought may the goodness of our moments of patience, 
humility. Our moments of inner listening and seeing the changing nature of things. May the goodness of this be shared above, below, and all around with all beings in all forms because our nature is truly measureless. May all beings share in the goodness of our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.